BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. I'm honored to be with you tonight. And as you know, this is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen and we bring you the insights, information and perspectives that the mainstream media so often ignore. Well, tonight, Tom Fitton, the president of Judicial Watch, joins the program. Tom has taken on some of Washington's most powerful agencies, and he's one. He's the author of a new book, A Republic Under Assault, the left's ongoing attack on American freedom. He joins us now. Tom, great to see you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Tom, first, Judicial Watch has a new update out. You guys just got this up over the weekend titled Election Crisis Update, Dead People Voting in Georgia, DOJ AWOL on Voter Fraud, Durham Fail. Please tell our viewers about what you guys have found. Boy, a lot going on there. Well, the president's legal team has filed what is, in effect, a civil rights lawsuit in Georgia over illicit voting. And they have evidence that there uh, may be as many as 10,000 plus dead people voting in Georgia and uh, hundreds of thousands of other votes properly counted, uh, both because of the, the way Georgia ran its elections and B, there were people like the dead people who shouldn't have been voting because it was just legal to vote. And obviously that's more than enough to change the um, uh, current results, and I use results in quotation marks, of the Georgia election. Yeah, and Tom, for uh, first, uh, can you let our viewers know if they want to get to your stories directly at Judicial Watch, let them know uh, exactly where to go. Oh, we're online at judicialwatch.org, judicialwatch.org, and of course we're on Twitter and Facebook, and, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook as well. Beautiful. So it, it's easy to find... Um, what we're talking about here tonight. Good, and let's let's get uh, your your comments also, please. The mainstream media has just been in a rush to blow past all of this evidence of election fraud. You know, we've covered um, on this program, we've had literally hundreds of people co come out signing sworn affidavits. It's literally the definition of evidence, and yet the mainstream media wants to pretend uh, that it's not there. From your perspective, what's happening in terms of the mainstream media's coverage of these election irregularities? Well, the media is mostly left and it's mostly Democrat. So they have a partisan ideological interest in seeing Trump leave the presidency and Joe Biden come in. And a part of that interest has been to minimize concerns about voter fraud, mm -hmm. ignore it, uh, pretend it doesn't exist, uh, or in many cases, uh, attack the very uh, fundamental security measures we need uh, to conduct free and fair elections. They oppose voter ID. They oppose the idea of cleaning up election rolls. I'm talking not only about the media, but the left generally. Mm -hmm. uh, they were pushing this crazed ballot harvesting. And uh, more, most recently and most uh, destructively, the tsunami of mail-in ballots that yeah. were now uh, 
now having to contend with is because essentially they ruined our elections in the sense that uh, we had no um, legitimate way of assuring voters that they would be counted honest, honestly or that their um, uh, where they came from could be uh, assured in terms of the legality of it. You bet. And Tom, you guys also have a story up about Obama's DHS scanning the Georgia election site in, in 2016. You guys filed a number of FOIA requests. You got some key documents. Tell, tell our viewers, please, what, what you found there. Yeah, back then, the, uh, the governor of Georgia was then Secretary of State, Mr. Kemp, and he sent a, a letter to DHS uh, detailing that there had been a breach of his system, his uh, Secretary of State's website, at least three times, if I recall correctly. And uh, we have the underlying documents at the Obama DHS, and uh, they were looking at his website. Now, they all say it was innocent. The DHS IG says it was innocent. Uh, but uh, it's clear they were probing not only um, Georgia's website, but the websites of other states. And what's really interesting about the documents, mm -hmm. uh, the computer logs that could tell us who was there and what was going on in a more detailed way were overwritten. And uh, DHS in the emails makes it clear they wanted to disguise the fact that they had overwritten it. So there was something going on here. And um, so I guess we're not allowed to ask about uh, security questions about computers, computer elections, unless, of course, it's the Obama gang that's probing the issue. Right. And Tom, you know, everybody's focused on on Georgia at the moment, not only because of the, the Senate races, but also like this, the continuing investigation of what happened during the presidential election. Uh, what do you and your team make of the video that's come out where you had officials actually clear the room, send election observers and the press out, and it appears that they continued to count ballots uh, through the night. What's your what's your analysis of what we're seeing there? Oh, I'd have the FBI investigate it mm -hmm. or, or legitimate law enforcement agency of some type. I think that's evidence of fraud. It's it's readily apparent uh, what was going on. You can you can watch the video yourselves. Uh, the uh, the anonymous um, uh, defense of the activity by Georgia election officials is troubling. Uh, it's at odds with what we know to have happened and what mm -hmm. we see there on the video. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm worried about the January elections for Senate in Georgia, mm -hmm. that the same system that was maladministered, to put it charitably, yeah. uh, for the November election, will just have a repeat of the same in January. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are who are concerned about that. I also think that at the moment, people's confidence in American elections anywhere has been greatly, greatly undermined by what we've seen uh, just just happened a couple weeks ago in, in November. Now, Tom, you know, the, the election isn't the only thing uh, that your team has been investigating. You guys have also been very strong for a while now on the Russia collusion narrative, on the genesis of it. Uh, you covered the failed attempt to prosecute General Flynn, and I understand that now you're you're in a legal battle with Hillary Clinton, uh, where you know the former secretary is fighting to avoid a sworn uh, deposition. What can what can you tell us about that? Yeah, unfortunately, she's been successful with, um, frankly, leftist judges who who have been protecting her, mm -hmm. uh, and the Justice Department's been virtually of no help. They've not right right now are actively trying to protect her. Uh, we plan to go to the Supreme Court to um, 
uh, be able to question her about uh, her her emails and, mm-hmm. her, and her practices. A federal court judge thought it was important, given what happened, that she have to answer some questions right. beyond type it, beyond writing uh, answering something in writing under oath, which you know obviously is not the same as being questioned in person under oath. And uh, this desperate effort to avoid testimony, I mean, we expect that from Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. What's really outrageous and frustrating is that the Justice Department is in the meantime trying to shut it all down. Yeah. So uh, we're not only fighting Hillary Clinton, but um, Barr's Justice Department and Pompeo's State Department, which is the agency that covered all this up. And let, let's talk a little bit about that, about um, Attorney General Barr's uh, Justice Department, because one of the things that we are hearing from our viewers every single day is that they're wondering where is the FBI, where is the DOJ in terms of the investigation of these election irregularities. We heard a big outcry, you know, again, people asking that they, they wanted somebody to investigate what appeared to be happening in that video in Georgia. You had Jesse Jacob in Michigan testifying that, uh, again, sworn affidavit, a uh, longtime government employee saying that she was ordered to backdate ballots. People are wondering, where is the DOJ? Where is the FBI in all of this? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the Justice Department, um, you know, bar aside, uh, it's largely run, like the media, by ideological leftists who are Democrats, mm. and they don't want to investigate this. I mean, if, if Barr's going to investigate it, he's going to have to go out to Wisconsin, Georgia himself, practically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, the most charitable interpretation is it's fear-based decision-making among the department and personnel uh, they don't want to do this. I mean, you were in government. They don't yeah. want to do the tough work that the American people expect them to do. The judges aren't doing it. The DOJ isn't doing it. The FBI has long been part of the problem. Uh, and uh, this is why the president's been forced to go to court himself uh, and, and, and taking this approach of uh, the constitutional option, as I call it, by pushing for uh, the state legislatures and ultimately Congress to step in. Yeah, well, we, we can certainly attest here uh, there's a tremendous amount of, of frustration. People want to see the DOJ and the FBI uh, taking action. Tom, before we go, if you could uh, tell everybody a little bit about the new book, uh, A Republic Under Assault. Well, I tell you, we're seeing evidence of it to this day, right now with the attack on our elections. Uh, we had the presidency under assault with the coup impeachment. We have the attack on our sovereignty with the effort to open borders and with the border crisis last year, uh, and just generally the attack on the rule of law with the Clinton gang and, and the typical corruption here in Washington, D.C. You know, and our republic depends on the rule of law. It depends on the Constitution to function. And we got um, a group of people here in Washington and an ideological movement uh, that hate the Constitution and love power, and they will destroy anything and anyone to get it and keep it. Well, we know you've been fighting the fight for, for a long time, Tom. We very much appreciate you making the time uh, to join us and our viewers tonight. Uh, folks, again, that, that's Tom Fitton, the president of Judicial Watch. He's got a great new book out, A Republic Under Assault. 
the left's ongoing attack on American freedom. You can check it out online, and you can also follow some of those stories at judicialwatch.org. Stay right with us. We're going to have more about the election, the future of the GOP, and we'll be joined by Ned Ryan in just a minute. Stay with us. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. This is the show that respects your intelligence, we honor you as a citizen, and we engage with strong thinkers who bring insight rooted in both fact and history. Today I'm really happy to have with us Ned Ryan. Ned is the founder and CEO of American Majority, and he is the author of Restoring Our Republic, The Making of the Republic, and How We Can Reclaim It Before It's Too Late. Ned, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, no, absolutely. Good to be with you, Eric. You bet. So, Ned, the first chapter of your book begins with the statement, greatness is a choice. Uh, tell our viewers, please, what you think right now is the most important thing for us all to remember about the founding of the republic, and what do we need to do to reclaim the republic? Well, for, first of all, I, I wanted to make that point coming out in the first chapter to remind people in a self-governing republic it really is about the choices that each of the individual makes and, and what we choose to accept or not accept. Uh, in, in many ways, decline is a choice. And we have to respond to what we're seeing around us say, we choose not to decline. We choose to be great. But that's not going to be easy, Eric. Mm -hmm. I think many of the American people have lost sight of the fact that in a self-governing republic, all power flows from the people. Yes. All power flows from the people to their elected representatives who are to be the stewards of the money and the power given to them to advance and protect the rights of the American people. And quite frankly, I'm seeing very little of that uh, in both the Democratic and Republican Party. And that's why Donald Trump, that's why this great outsider showed up in 2016. And people thought at first, this is a joke, he doesn't have a chance. But he was actually speaking to the American people and saying, I don't accept this decline. I don't accept what's going on in Washington, D.C. It is a broken system. It is the swamp yeah. uh, that is not serving the American people, in fact, serving a ruling class. So I think part of this whole idea of restoring the republic is, first of all, the American people need to understand their rights and the power that they mm -hmm. have that the founders put in, in their hands when they constructed this constitutional republic, you know, back in the summer of 1787. Yeah. And then when you when you look at where we're at today, at this moment, uh, there is so, so many people who are so angry about what happened during the presidential election, not necessarily because of uh, the, the result, but because they were so upset about the way that the election was conducted. They've seen all of these election irregularities. And then to kind of compound that frustration, they've seen the mainstream media keep pushing this narrative. There's no evidence of election fraud, no evidence of election fraud. And they're, they're watching they're watching videos themselves that certainly look like right. evidence. They're seeing hundreds of people who've come forward with sworn affidavits. It's literally the definition of evidence. You've got a column out uh, at American Greatness about what we need to do to clean up the mess that is our current electoral system. If you could talk with our viewers a little bit about what you see as the way forward there. Well, well first of all, we have to understand that our electoral system, if, if you can even call it that, uh, is, is very broken. But Eric, part of the thing that I want to emphasize to those watching is 
part of the thing that they have to start doing is demanding accountability, yes. not only from their elected officials, but also from party leadership. Because I'm going to tell you, you know, after I wrote that column, I started having conversations with some people uh, about what took place with the RNC and the GOP coming into the 2020 elections. And to highlight what took place, Mark Elias, who I hope people recognize that name from the infamous Steele dossier, mm-hmm. uh, actually started uh, about 300 lawsuits right after the 2018 elections. And according to some reports, spent about $100 million in those 300 cases to get us to the point where we're at, right, where it's not election day, it's election weeks, universal mail, and all this bizarre behavior that took place in the 2020 elections. To juxtapose against that, based off some of the people that I've talked to who have good knowledge, the leadership of the GOP, the RNC, was warned. At the end of 2018, what was going to take place? They chose not to do anything, and based off some other reports I've seen, Eric, they only spent about $4 million in legal challenges versus wow. the $100 million. At some point, based off the time that that Mark Elias had and the money that he had, it was almost inevitable. And of course, then they took the coronavirus Mm -hmm. uh, situation and and used that as justification for universal mail. So the point I'm making this really quick on this article, a couple things. First of all, most of the civilized, advanced societies in the world, about 90 percent, don't allow electronic voting machines. I'm actually calling for a return to the 19th century voting methods as we go into the as we're in the 21st century we want to go back to paper ballots in person voting photo uh, photo id and we have to have observers of both parties close proximity to actually be able to watch and give you know real integrity to the process we have to remove the idea that somehow we can willy-nilly have universal mail in uh, and there's not going to be fraud most of the country most of the rest of the country in the world are not under that delusion. In fact, I make the point in this article, France outlawed universal mail and absentee ballots back in 1975. Why? Because of the fraud that they saw in Corsica in which people were buying yeah. and using uh, ballots and also dead people were voting. So not only that, but we've also cl- got to clean up our data rules. You pro- you know this, yeah. former governor, that sometimes there's a real struggle, especially if that's a, the other party that owns the secretaries or controls the secretary of state office. They don't want to clean the voter rolls. Dirty elections stem from dirty data. And a lot of the times that these dead people, well, all the time that the dead people get to vote is because they're still on these voter rolls. Clean up the rolls, actually get them up to where they should be. And I would actually call for a quarterly cleaning every year. At that point, you remove the dead people and the ghost voters from the rolls, and then you demand in-person voting. Because I also make this point too, Eric, I've never seen a dead person vote in person. Right, right. <laughs> right. It's challenging. Right? It's far more challenging. Yeah, very challenging. Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, one of the things that I really liked about about your column, I'm going to ask you to to comment on as well, is that, you know, and I I appreciate about all of your thinking, is that it's always kind of rooted in American history. It's rooted in in kind of these very basic principles of of the American Constitution. But you also take a kind of wide view to give people a sense that when you're calling for a return to paper ballots, this isn't some anti-technology call. You're actually rooting this in what people have found around the world. If I understand, the Supreme Court of Germany actually outlawed electronic voting machines. Talk a little bit about what other people around the world have found and why you're calling on the for, for these kinds of changes. Yeah, no, back in, in the spring of 2009, uh, the German uh, Supreme Court actually outlawed and said we are not going to use electronic voting machines, partly because it was open to manipulation and then at the same time, they felt that most of the average voter couldn't understand the entire process through which electronic voting machines were actually used. So Germany's outlawed what, what are called EVMs, electronic voting machines, since 2009. 
Uh, Canada does not allow them either. In fact, Canada has paper ballots. You, you vote in person with people in the room. Uh, and, and a lot of these countries, too, not an insignificant amount, require photo ID. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, these are basic things. At some point, we have to have a conversation as a country. Are we going to be serious about the electoral yeah. integrity in which we elect our leaders or are we not? Because right now we have this complete mishmash of different states. And I have to tell you this, too. I'm a huge believer in federalism in which we diffuse power yeah. back to the states, Eric. But I have to tell you, in this situation with the national federal elections, I think at some point we have to have some form of standardization because I also make this point. Listen, if the individual states want to screw up their state and local elections, more power to them. They can be those laboratories of democracy and screwing up their own elections. But when it comes to national federal elections, I think at some point we have to have a conversation where we have national standards for the federal elections in which we actually say we're going to look at Florida's laws after the 2000 elections. Florida actually changed their rules in which you could count and get all the absentee ballots voted by uh, counted by Election Day. So we don't end up having a week Mm -hmm. or two weeks extension. So I think we have to have a conversation about how we standardize some of this before 2024. Cool. And then let's talk again. Let's let's pull out kind of big picture. A lot of times when people think about elections, they think about Democrat versus versus Republican. I mean, one of the, the points that you've made is that a lot of times this is American citizens versus the swamp is really what's what's That's at right. stake here. And, you know, you talk uh, you've got another column out about the future of the GOP, America first versus corporatism. Give our viewers a sense right. for what you see as the big choice that needs to be made moving forward. Well, I actually think, I mean, one of the big debates that's going on in both of the major parties is corporatism versus socialism for the Democrats, and it's America first versus corporatism in Republican circles. Mm -hmm. And again, America first being, let's prioritize the American worker. Let's prioritize the American taxpayer. How do we advance and protect their interests uh, over those of the corporations or the tech companies? And the thing that's frustrating me a little bit, Eric, to be completely honest, obviously, American majority has been with the base for 12 years. Mm -hmm. We've trained people how to run for state and local office. I'm a little frustrated with what's going on in Georgia right now because some of these people in the base are saying we're not going to vote. We're going to punish the establishment January 5th. And I've been telling them it's because you have left undone those things which you ought to have done. A party is what people say it is. And the people who say what it is are those that show up and run in primaries and win the primaries and show up at conventions. And I've been saying this for over a decade now. And if the base wants to be serious, America first. Make America Great wants to be serious about taking one of those major parties, the Republican Party, and making a creature of its own creation and advancing these ideals. They're going to have to be serious about doing some real work, running in primaries, running for precinct chair, showing up at conventions. And if they don't do it, they will have nobody to blame but themselves. Well, I think this is a really, really important point that, that you're making, Ned. I mean, everybody always talks about that famous moment where Benjamin Franklin was asked what kind of, uh, right. you know, what kind of government uh, the founders had created. And he said, a republic if you can, you keep, can keep it. it. And there's this basic idea that American citizens have to stay engaged. Now, you've been doing this kind of work for a long time with American Majority. What is your message in, in just the last 20 seconds that we have here to American citizens at this moment about the necessity of staying engaged? Well, some of these things should have been done 10 years ago. The next best time to do them is tomorrow is starting in January of 2021 and saying, I'm going to actually put some work in because it is our republic, Eric, if we make the right choices. Again, going back to greatness is a choice. We actually have to make choices to be involved in doing meaningful work. And that would be my challenge to everyone watching. Make a decision in January of 2021, you are going to start doing meaningful work to take back and to restore the republic. 
Awesome, folks. That's Ned Ryan. Ned, again, he's the founder and CEO of American Majority. He is the author of Restoring Our Republic, The Making of the Republic, and How We Can Reclaim It Before It's Too Late. Uh, I think that for all of you who appreciate insight that is rooted in history, insight that is rooted in a love for the American Constitution, uh, you're going to love Ned's book. It's an outstanding one. Well, stay right with us. We're going to be back with more. We're going to be talking about the election, and we're also going to have some reflections on this day, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. We'll be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. Now we're joined by Joe Weber, news editor at justthenews.com. Joe, Just the News has seen explosive growth over the last few months. Uh, You've seen it. I've seen it. More and more people are looking past the mainstream media. They're looking to get truth. They're looking to get information from other sources. Uh, We've seen that. I want to talk with you about some of the big stories at justthenews.com. First, you guys are looking at what's happening now with the spending bill and particularly this coronavirus stimulus package. What's what's happening there, Joe? Yeah, a couple of things here that you know, everyone talked about how this bill was going to, you know, um, was held up over election politics. And yet here we are, you know, two months, I mean, almost a month after a month more, and we still aren't anywhere closer than we, you know, mm-hmm. we were in May when the House Democrats uh, passed their bill. Now, what's interesting is that there's some reporting now that there appears to be maybe a uh, continuing resolution, not for one month or three months, but for a week. And that should be a telltale sign of just how complicated this thing is to get passed. And um, take a look with the coronavirus stimulus packages. Same situation here. Um, the There was a bipartisan effort, and that appeared to be something that was going to finally move this out of the House Democrat controlled uh, um, chamber versus the GOP controlled Senate as a sort of a bipartisan effort, effort, but that appears stuck too. Uh, One other thing that's quite interesting now is now that Steve Mnuchin appears not to to no longer be the treasurer after January, um, Mitch McConnell's back in control here. Interesting. And, you know, one of the other big stories that I saw uh, that you also have out at justthenews.com. It's a lead story from John Solomon about the State Department that viewed Burisma lobbying as aggressive. Now, and all of our viewers are going to remember that when these stories started coming out about Hunter Biden and his potential connection to, uh, to, to Joe Biden and what they were doing, uh, they're lobbying with foreign governments that in fact, a lot of the big tech censors refuse to allow those stories to get out. You guys have a, have a story right now at justthenews.com about the State Department themselves saying that this Burisma lobbying looked, looked aggressive and uh, potentially worrying to them. Uh, tell us a bit more about what yeah. you see there. This is some really solid reporting again by John Solomon, who you know is a heart and soul of yeah. Just the News and all the great reporting that he's done on Burisma. He's got himself a hold of a memo of State Department declassified memo that suggests that the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine 
uh, was very concerned about what they called an aggressive lobbying campaign by uh, Hunter Biden uh, to try to get a uh, prosecutor who was looking into the Burisma. This, as you know, is a state run or state controlled uh, energy resource company uh, to try to get that prosecutor off their back. And that has really been one at the heart of you know what this information was. And Hunter Biden allegedly using his influence, has his father being vice president at the time when this was all going on. And that's what he continues to. I don't think this story is going to go away, and regardless of who is in, ever in charge of the administration. I know that the House, I mean, the GOP-controlled Senate still continue to investigate that as well. John yeah, as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, turning back to, to the election uh, for a minute, you guys also have a story about what's happening now in Wisconsin. Please uh, give our give our viewers a bit of an update there. The General Assembly Committee, uh, GOP controlled committee uh, in Wisconsin, is going to take a look at some of these ballots uh, that are questionable. These are the write in ballots, mostly in the November, November 3rd election. Um, House GOP leaders say that they've received thousands of uh notices from people, voters across the state saying that there's been um, alleged uh, voter fraud. So they're going to continue to look into them. I got to definitely point out the time's running out for the Electoral College is going to certify uh, these ballots for the presidential election in just, you know, maybe the next 10 days. Uh, so this is going to, you know, have to get into the courts and have to get into the Supreme Court uh, as soon as possible. Now, the president two weeks ago, uh, wasn't very optimistic about it getting to the Supreme Court. But if anybody listened or watched his big rally in uh, mm -hmm. Georgia Saturday, he said, we will get to the Supreme Court. So there's renewed energy. Everybody knows Rudy uh, Giuliani, his chief attorney in this, is on the sidelines with coronavirus. But they've all, even uh, Giuliani said, this, this effort will go on. Yeah, there's certainly they're certainly continuing to uh, to fight it every day. Uh, you guys also have a story out about the Biden administration and their potential plans around vaccines, a potential Biden administration, what they were saying versus what Alex Azar was saying. Give our give our viewers an update there. Yeah, this is interesting. Joe Biden said late last week that the administration has, quote unquote, no, does not have a plan. Alex Azar went out on the uh, airwaves yesterday. He's a HHS secretary, uh, knocked that down. He called that nonsense. And uh, he came back yesterday. I mean, this morning, talked a little bit more about it. He says that there are 40 million uh, vaccines mm -hmm. ready to go. Uh, if the FDA approves that uh, within what we think is the next week or two weeks, and that within that approval time, vaccines will be uh, out and being distributed within days. He also made clear on the pushback that you know, other countries have uh, maybe gotten ahead of the United States on the rollout, that he is intent upon making sure that he adheres to what he calls the FDA's gold standard of approval. He doesn't want Americans to think that politics has gotten in the way of policy. Absolutely. Now, now again, uh, speaking with that, uh, former Vice President Biden has signaled that he might put into the into HHS a very a very progressive uh, nominee were he to be uh, to yeah. become president. Yeah, Javier Becerra. We all know his name. He was part of uh, House Democratic Speaker Nancy Pelosi's leadership team, and as Attorney General, uh, once he left Congress in California, he led coalition of about 20 progressive or Democratic uh, attorneys general across the country in an effort to try to preserve Obamacare. It's the 2020, I mean, 2010 landmark, you know, Obama era legislation. And he's particularly interested in preserving uh, what has been troublesome for everybody, at least financially. And that's the public option, which the Obama administration, the Trump administration, excuse me, uh, was able to, at least in the courts, get rid of for a while.
Absolutely. Now, again, another another really important story uh, that you have is that you guys are actually following what's happening to kids across the country who are having to learn remotely. Uh, tell us what you what yeah. you found there. Uh, I find me I find this the most interesting story of the day. Uh, as you know, anybody who has children, report cards are coming out uh, in December. And we're finding across the country some very alarming um, numbers. Uh, AP contributed to a report that suggests that uh, you know not only are students not um, getting good grades or Fs, but just flat out zeros. Eight mm percent -hmm. of Oregon County uh, school district. They took a look at Fairfax County, uh, which is right in our area. Um, their school system. They're showing incredibly number high number of Fs, and this is all attributed to the inability for students to learn in class. Uh, the remote learning, they can't follow the kids because they don't get on Zoom. There's issues about uh, connectivity, not allowing them to upload and download um, their assignments. That's also a problem. On a personal level, as I think you know, I have a daughter in high school. I've witnessed yeah. this firsthand just how hard it is. And I'm also an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland, still teaching a class online for the second semester. And students are struggling, um, not to, you know, not casting blame on anybody else, but I think there's a general agreement that students do much better in classrooms and there's a big push to try to get leaders to get these students back into the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And Joe, was there any indication either there in the story or from your personal experience about how this is affecting different kids at different age levels? Yeah, it's mostly focused on um, students in middle school and high school. And um, most of them are finding that, um, you know, at that, at that age, they're very tactile learners. They need to have one-on-one -on -one interaction and have with a teacher and have that feedback and not being able to even communicate with them. And the willingness or the allowability to not have your video on doesn't allow teachers to really get a good sense of, you know, who's doing well and not. Even just a facial expression can tell you or uncertainty in a student's eyes, you know, mm -hmm. And, and they're just not getting that. And that really is important to the younger students. That's what they're finding out. Right. And Joe, you know, one other, uh, one other story you guys are also uh, following closely is, of course, what's happening in Georgia uh, with the Senate races. We recently had, had a debate there. Please give, give our viewers a quick update on that as well. We debate uh, Sunday night between Kelly Loeffler and uh, who's the GOP incumbent there and uh, Reverend Warnock, who's the challenger. What was interesting to go back to the earlier story, they asked both of them, um, what would they do about this coronavirus stimulus package that seems to be stuck? And would you agree to the roughly $900 billion package that's now on the table? Uh, neither one of them uh, would say whether they agreed with it or not or proposed their own amount, which just goes to show you just how politically fraught uh, this um, topic is. Other high points of that, um, Combat Loeffler, Kelly Loeffler continued to try to portray um, Reverend, the Reverend as a, a radical liberal and where Warnock continued to argue that Loeffler is just an appointee and really has no record in Congress to run on. Yeah, and Joe, when you step back big picture, I mean, one of the things I'd ask you also to, to reflect on here is the issue of censorship in the media. You guys have been out repeatedly making sure you're out there covering all of these stories. We've had a good, you know, kind of list of them right here. And you also make an effort every day to create this section, this dig in section where viewers, readers can actually go and they can see the raw facts themselves. Why is that that's so important to you right now? Two things. One, I think that if you take a look at it, um, it in on a pure, you know, 
prima facie case surface level. Uh, that information is not, much of this information is not being, being reported by other news outsiders outlets to the quote-unquote mainstream media. So there's a real, you know, desire for that. We've seen the rise of other, um, along with ours, um, new conservative leaning or a more or less non-stream mainstream media outlets um, getting this information, reporting on um, potential voter fraud, uh, the hearings, the um, events that Rudy Giuliani has heard with witnesses coming forward with information about voter fraud or, you know, one gentleman testified that he drove a truck down from Bethpage, uh, mm -hmm. Rhode Island, all the way to Pennsylvania with 882,000 ballots and never remained to be seen. That wasn't covered by a lot of people. And, you know, from a business standpoint as well, uh, there's a, you know, there's a need for, there's a market for that and there's an interest in that. So, um, you know, we're here to provide it. And as long as there's a window of opportunity uh, for us to provide that information to people, we're going to keep on doing it. Good. Well, we know a lot of our viewers and a lot of your readers are, are very glad for it. So again, folks, uh, you can go out to check out all of those stories at justthenews.com. And don't just read them yourself. Let your friends and neighbors know that that's also where you're getting your news at justthenews.com. And here at Real America's Voice. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. Well, right now, Real America's Voice, Heather Mullins is on the ground in Atlanta, Georgia. Heather, welcome to Actionable Intelligence. Thanks for having me, Eric. There's a lot going on here in Georgia. Yeah, t tell us, there's so much going on. You've had the president down there. You've got the Senate hanging in the balance in Georgia. Lots of legal challenges. Give our viewers a sense. You've been out there on the front lines talking to people. What's happening right now in Georgia? What do they need to know? Well, we know that there was a statewide hand recount. Following that, there was another recount uh, asked for by the Trump campaign. Now, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, was here this morning saying that they still plan on moving forward to certify the election results here in Georgia. Now, this comes as a shock to me because, as you guys know, I've been here for a month, been here investigating Floyd County, one of the bigger counties that I was in. Their recount found 3,062 votes that weren't initially counted. Now, this is reflected on the Secretary of state's website yet in his press conference this morning he said the numbers after the recounts remained unchanged that's simply not true 3062 votes from floyd county alone were different the second time around than they were the first time and that's one county now we've also seen fulton county was the big uh topic of discussion this past thursday at the georgia senate oversight committee hearings you had footage that came out that showed people scanning in ballots after observers gave sworn affidavits saying that they were told to go home so there's a lot that's surrounding this. Also in Fulton County, though, I should point out, you had witnesses testifying that ballots were going missing. One in particular, a woman who said her job was to print test ballots to calibrate the machine, but those ballots were printed on official voter paper, and that those ballots were no different when scanned into the machines, and that they went missing. So there's a lot of stuff like this that you're hearing here in Georgia, but for some reason, the Secretary of State refuses to acknowledge it. In fact, Gabriel Sterling, who's the voter system implementation manager for the Secretary of State, was on Newsmax less than 24 hours after this bombshell 14-hour video was released, saying that there was nothing to see here, everything was fine, the observers were never told to go home. 
But this is a 14-hour video, and he's giving a statement less than 24 hours later. How much investigating could he have done? Did he talk with those GOP observers? Did he talk with the four people that are, were allegedly pulling ballots out of suitcases under a table draped with a cloth? I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions. He is supposed to be speaking here later this afternoon, and rest assured we're going to be here to hear what he has to say. Excellent. And Heather, on that video specifically, we've had so much feedback from our viewers who've said, where is law enforcement? Where is the FBI? How come this isn't being investigated? Give our viewers a sense for what you know about how, if that video is actually being investigated. So it's hard to say because it just came out this past weekend, and, and now you have the uh, Secretary of State's office completely writing it off as if, mm -hmm. like, nothing is wrong. And, it, you know, and it's not just that. You had other witnesses that testified. That video is the big one because it gives us that visual of, like, what was going on and shows you that, hey, some things don't seem right. But there were several other witnesses here that testified some very concerning things. Ballots going missing. Another woman said she showed up to vote on Election Day in an absentee ballot it was not only uh, the application was requested in her name, they sent the vote back in her name on October 6th. And when the Secretary of State's office got assigned the case, they eventually closed it, giving her no answers whatsoever. So some of these things that people deserve answers for, the Secretary of State is just not telling us what happened. Well, Heather, we very much appreciate you digging into the facts on the ground there in Georgia. Uh, we'll be coming back to you uh, throughout the week. Well, folks, er earlier today, earlier today, uh, Just the News and Real America's Voices, Carrie Sheffield sat down with Mo Brooks. Let's go ahead and have a listen. While the courts have a role in this process, in the United States Constitution, Article 1, Article 2, and the 12th Amendment, it is the United States Congress that is the final judge and jury, the final arbiter of election contests for the House, for the Senate, and for the President of the United States. So it's going to be my job as a judge and as a juror to make up my own mind as to whether this election was so badly flawed with voter fraud and election theft as to justify Joe Biden being sworn in as President of the United States on January the 20th. And in my judgment, it is so badly flawed that Joe Biden did not win if you count only the lawful votes cast by eligible American citizens. Well, joining us now is Just the News' White House correspondent, and hopefully if you're tuning in in the morning, you see her here in the morning, Carrie Sheffield at 9 a.m. with Just the News AM. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Eric, and thank you for that plug. Of course, of course. So, so what did you learn from the interview uh, with Mo Brooks today? So we covered a lot of ground, a yes. lot of topics. One idea that he floated was interesting that I hadn't seen before because we've been covering this now for several days. Yes. Uh, he's been talking about this actually for weeks, the idea that he wants to challenge. The newest thing I saw was his idea he brought up of a compromise. And he went all the way back in history to the election of Rutherford Hayes. Um, and he said at that time it was very hotly contested and there was only one vote differential in the Electoral College. Mm. But what the southern states were able to extract in exchange for bringing peace um, was the removal of some troops 
from the south, some Union troops, some Northern troops from the south, um, and that was kind of the, the compromise. And so he said, we might, if, if I'm not successful, we might find some other way to compromise, whether that's through electoral reforms or just making sure that this doesn't happen from his perspective again in any other election in the future. Another big takeaway, yeah. his one of his biggest concerns was illegal immigrant voting. And we're talking not only about illegal immigrants who are here illegally, but also about legal immigrants. Maybe they have a green card, but they're still not citizens. They're mm. not allowed to vote. And that's one of his biggest red flags from an electoral standpoint, because he says, and we've reported here at Just the News on yeah. a study that found on the low end of the estimate, um, it probably would not have swayed the election, but on the high end of the estimate of people who are immigrants who should not be voting, who are not citizens, it could have very well swung the election to Joe Biden. And so for him, he said that alone is reason why he's probably need to bring this challenge. And, and walk, walk our viewers through what's likely to happen in the next couple of days, because this could be this could be imminent, depending on how things uh, how things turn out. Sure. So his challenge would actually not take place until January, January 6th, because it would be the new Congress. So the Constitution says it's the new Congress. The uh, it, it lays out the date and the time of when. So it's January 6th is when he would be doing it. But in the next couple of days here, the electors are slated to vote. Uh, December 14th is when they would have to, the Electoral College would have to vote to certify. Uh, based on the projections right now, it would go to Joe Biden. But that's far from certain if you talk to the president's advisors. Yes. But if for some reason this does happen and the Electoral College certifies Biden as the victor, um, then Mo Brooks would step in January 6th and say, I, you know, halt, as he said in that clip, it is the legislature that ultimately has the say, and I'm going to challenge some specific states he mentioned on my program, Pennsylvania and Georgia, um, and I believe it was um, also in Wisconsin. So, you know, specific places where he says there was malfeasance within the electoral process. It then, and this is where, where he disagrees with some legal experts I spoke to, mm. including Hans von Spasikowski, who is at Heritage. Um, he said he doesn't think that Mo Brooks has a, a very good chance at this because Mo Brooks says he doesn't need to persuade both the House and Senate. He says he can do the contingent election, which would be one vote per state, and it's based on delegations as opposed to um, persuading half of the chamber of both the Senate and the House. So it's a bit complicated, yeah. um, but there's a dispute here. Mo Brooks says he has a chance. Uh, some legal scholars say no, he doesn't. We'll, we'll ultimately see. We'll see. Well, Kerry, thank you. Thank you very much. Again, folks, that's Just the News' White House correspondent, Kerry Sheffield. She's also here every morning. Uh, at 9 a.m. Now, before we go, we want to look back on this day in history to the year 1941. As many of you know, it was on December 7th, 1941, just before 8 a.m. local time, that 353 Imperial Japanese aircraft attacked unsuspecting sailors and their families on the base of Pearl Harbor on the island of Hawaii. 188 U.S. aircraft were destroyed. 2,403 Americans gave their lives that day, and nearly 1,200 were wounded in the attack. Later that same day, Japan would declare war on the United States, marking the America's official entry into World War II. Today and every day, we honor the sacrifice of our American heroes. Uh, and I have a personal story, which is that my grandfather was actually on the USS Enterprise, which was out to sea at the time when Pearl Harbor was attacked. But he, um, both of my grandfathers, uh, fought throughout World War II, as many of yours uh, did as well. We appreciate all of those American heroes. Take a quick look here at this piece that we've put together about Pearl Harbor and looking back on December 7th, 1941. December 7th, 
1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God.